I'm not sure if everyone's aware, but Idaho is known for potatoes. We seem to have that on our license plate. <laughs> yeah. We grow over 322,000 acres of potatoes and produce over a third of the potatoes in the U.S. Meet Jenny Duran, the director of the Seed Potato Germplasm Program at the University of Idaho. Whether we're talking about French fries from McDonald's or the small purple potatoes you find at farmer's markets, 90% of potatoes produced in Idaho can trace their lineage to Jenny's lab. Picture the lab as a potato nursery. In the lab, Jenny is the caretaker of more than 300 varieties of potatoes, including new varieties of the tubers produced by researchers at U of I. Welcome, everyone, to The Vandal Theory. Hi, everyone. My name is Lee Cooper, and I'm a science writer here at U of I, and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research from the University of Idaho. Throughout the second season of the podcast, we've met U of I researchers and learned about the questions they're trying to answer, the problems they've wanted to solve, and what intrigues them about their research. Jenny and I sat down to talk about Idaho's state vegetable, the potato. Well, Jenny, welcome to The Vandal Theory. Thanks for coming in today. Can you introduce yourself for everybody? Sure. Thanks, Lee. I'm Jenny Duran. I'm director of the Seed Potato Germplasm Program at the University of Idaho. Now, germplasm, I want to come back to that. But first... Potatoes. What? Why potatoes? As a child, did you look at a pile of mashed potatoes and were like, yes, this is my life calling? Or or what happened? What, what got you into potatoes? So actually, I started out as a um, molecular biologist. Um, if you start working with plants in Idaho, it's going to lead to potatoes at some <laughs> point. Um, I'm not sure if everyone's aware, but Idaho is known for potatoes. We seem to have that on our license plate. <laughs> yeah. We grow over 322,000 acres of potatoes and produce over a third of the potatoes in the U.S. So uh, with molecular biology, I got involved in plant pathology. So I started so making work- them sick. And- yes, basically. Yeah. Becoming a plant physician, you know, <laughs> um, diagnosing plants for different diseases and then um, trying to figure out ways to do some research into preventing them from from getting these diseases. Sure. So my whole education relates around making potatoes as sick as possible. Um, But this opportunity came up for this laboratory, and now my job is to try to make the healthiest potatoes possible and to distribute completely disease-free potatoes. Okay. So that brings us back to germplasm then. Mm -hmm. So can you describe what germplasm is? Yeah. So we have over 300 varieties of potatoes in the lab, all different types, with all different genetic backgrounds, with so different... Not just co- Idaho potatoes. Not just Idaho potatoes. We have collections from South Korea. We have collections from Peru. And then we also have the varieties that are produced in Idaho through the Idaho potato breeders. So we do have several different collections. And we have what we call mother plants. And those mother plants are the germplasm. So uh, we maintain them in test tubes with a nutrient goo full of sugar and everything that the plants need. And we are able to disperse that germplasm out. So we're able to take copies of it by making cuttings of the actual plant material and then sending it out to other labs so that they can grow and start their own plants. And so when I say germplasm, I mean the starting material that I can disperse out and maintain in the lab. So these little baby plants that are genetically uh, clones, basically, of the the mother plants. Exactly. And that's one of the important parts of germplasm is that um, they're genetically identical to the mother plants. So as we make cuttings, 
there's no differences. We're not using true seed or anything like that where there could be genetic differences down the line. They're all clones of one another. So I'm a potato farmer. I want, uh, what, what's one of your favorite potatoes? Oh, my favorite potato. <laughs> um, you know, right now I like huckleberry gold. Huckleberry gold. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I have a very distinct picture of what that is. I'm guessing it doesn't <laughs> actually look like that. <laughs> Um, anyway, so I want a huckleberry gold. I write you and say, hey, can I buy, you know, 10 huckleberry golds and you send me 10 little test tubes with little mm-hmm. huckleberry gold plants inside of it. Exactly. And that's what we would call a germplasm transfer. So oh. we would send you little plants um, and then you could multiply them up in your own laboratory if okay. you do, if you have a laboratory. Of course I have a so laboratory. We- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have several different types of customers. The main purpose of our lab is to produce germplasm that we can disperse out throughout the United States or throughout the world even. Um, We also produce massive amounts of plantlets. When I say plantlets, I mean it's the same thing as producing germplasm. We're taking cuttings of the vegetative material in the test tubes, but we're producing them on a large scale. So we'll produce up to 100,000 plus plants for customers that own greenhouses and they're able to grow these plantlets up into full-size plants and produce their own tubers. And then we also produce um, plantlets for ourselves that we plant into our own greenhouse so that we will produce mini tubers, what we call mini tubers, just they're small potatoes because they're being produced in a pot. And then we send those out to the customer and they can plant those directly into the field. And our customers are uh, small-time farmers, small farmers, small organic farmers, all the way up to big conventional farms that produce hundreds of thousands of pounds of potatoes. So, okay. So in Idaho, then, the various plantlets and the, the germplasms and go out into uh, Idaho. And what percentage of, I think it's pretty high, of, of the potatoes in Idaho can, like, draw their lineage from us? Yeah, it's pretty high. And when you say draw lineage from us, it's that's from the germplasm transfers. So okay. we do have such a large collection of potatoes that we're able to provide uh, material to other labs. And when you take that into account, about 90% of the potatoes in Idaho can be traced back to our lab. And about 60% throughout the U.S. can be traced back to our lab. So we have quite a big impact on the industry as a whole. I don't have a figure for our international presence yet because it's been, it keeps going up every year, but we've been sending plantlets throughout the world, or germplasm throughout the world, um, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, China, all throughout Europe, just to name a few, but it's been increasing. Oh, also all throughout South America as well. So I've been in your lab. I, I sort of expected to walk in and it to be more greenhouse-esque, to, to you know, smell the, the loam and everything. But it's, it's not like that at all. You don't, I didn't see any soil anywhere. So how do you grow these little guys? Yeah, we try to stay as far away from soil as we can, actually, because soil is full of organic material. We don't know where it came from. We don't know what contaminants are in it. So we try to stay as far away from it as possible. And we try to grow plants in as sterile of conditions as we can. So when you did come to the lab, you didn't. I didn't take you into our growth room. So Ooh. we do have a growth room where we grow Darn. all of these <laughs> plants under fluorescent lights. So we grow them in test tubes, like I said before, in a nutrient goo. And inside the test tube, it's actually sterile. So the only living thing in there is the plant. And the reason for that is 
we don't want any sort of contaminants getting into the test tube because the mold or bacteria that could get in there would outcompete the plant, so it would overtake the jar and kill the plant. So it's not necessarily about oh, the potatoes are going to get sick. It's more bacteria grow so fast that they're going to just beat them out for everything. Yeah, and that's our main threat. There is a chance that a potato pathogen could actually get into our potato plants, and that is one of the reasons that we keep them in what we call tissue culture, so in test tubes, in this nutrient goo, in a sterile container, is that we want to keep them isolated and in a controlled environment away from other potato plants away from soil, things like that. All right. And then <laughs> and then you also, I know, use hydroponics. Where does that come in? Yeah, so hydroponics is not in our laboratory. Okay. We have a separate facility out at Parker Farm. Uh, we have a greenhouse out and there. And where's Parker Farm? Parker Farm is about three miles away from campus. Okay, but in Moscow east. area. It's in Moscow area, so okay. about three miles east. And they grow, there's foundation seed for all different types of plants out there. I don't know all the details of what goes on out there. I just know what we do out there. Um, We have a greenhouse where we grow the potatoes. Um, I mentioned before that we produce germplasm, we produce plantlets, and then we also produce tubers. And the hydroponics is used to produce the tubers that we sell to our customers. The little itty bitty potatoes that can then Mm -hmm. go out. Yeah. And what we call that potato seed. So in the potato world, when you use the word seed, it's actually the tuber itself. We don't use the true seed from the classic seed. Yeah, the the classic seed. So we use ebb and flow hydroponics. And the reason for that is we have complete control over the system. So we're able to stress out the potato plants when we want, um, you know, increase, decrease pH. We're able to have complete control over the plant and when it'll initiate tuberization and when we want it to bulk up, we can give it more nutrients. And, and we've a- stress causes those things to. Okay. Yeah, stress with <laughs> potatoes. Their first thought is, oh, I need to make babies. So they start putting out all, the, you know, they take all the energy from their foliage and they start putting it down into their stolons underground and then they start producing tubers all over it. And so once you stress them out, they produce a bunch of tubers, and then you can give them nutrients again, and then the tubers start to bulk up. So when I walked into your lab, there was quite a few people running around. Do you have students working in your lab as well? Yeah. So one of the, one function of our lab is to actually train students in tissue culture and hydroponics. So I hire several students, especially in the spring when we have a lot of plantlet orders, I'll hire as many students as I possibly can to come in and try to help us because sometimes we're, you know, in the lab till midnight, you know, trying to get these plantlet orders out. So the more students I have helping, the better. Yeah, they they learn valuable skills in tissue culture, um, learning sterile technique, and they also help out in the greenhouse with hydroponics. I guess one question I have is, is you said we have over 300 varieties? Why do we need 300 varieties? I mean, I can think of maybe five or six varieties of potatoes that I've ever used in all of my cooking. I so know. Why 300. <laughs> and I'm pretty sad about that. I'm sad people only know about that many. So, potatoes are a very old crop. Um, they've been around for a long time, started in Peru up in the mountains. Um, actually, the International Potato Center in Peru has thousands of varieties of potatoes. Oh, wow. So, Ours is pretty small potatoes compared to them. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't help it. 
Um, <laughs> so we have so many different varieties because they have different qualities about them that are of value. So some store better, some have earlier maturity out in the field, some have later maturity in the field. You know, some of our Canadian customers, they prefer earlier maturing varieties because they have a shorter growing season. Makes sense. Um, and so then those would also need longer dormancy because they would need to keep them, st- store them longer before they could actually sell them to producers. There's also a new potato out, the Huckleberry Gold, actually, that has a low glycemic index. So they all have different qualities about them and that could be of value to different growers. And so we just have them all so that they're available in case somebody is interested in them. So some of them, obviously, they're, they're growing different. Uh, and depending on what your weather is and climate and everything, that's going to make a difference. And then they do taste different to a certain extent. Yeah, they do. Of course, and the market, it seems to be changing a little. You're seeing a lot more of the different colors and stuff. Is that true? Are people seeing that? Yeah. So there's a trend right now for small potatoes. So when you go into the grocery store, you'll actually see little bags of small steamer potatoes. Sure, And they're all different colors. There's actually the little potato company is the one that comes to mind. So people are wanting these more colorful, more organic, natural-looking potatoes. You know, ones like ones that you see in pictures for in the mountains of Peru. They want the more knobbly, mm-hmm. different colored potatoes. And so, yeah, we have quite a different um, selection of purple potatoes, yellow potatoes, potatoes, golden potatoes, white potatoes. So if not, you know being catered to different growing conditions, just the color itself gives us a lot more potatoes in our lab. Yeah, because I mean, growing up, I remember, I mean, you had the russet baking potato, and that was pretty much all the potatoes you had. And now, yeah, I am seeing Mm -hmm. um, a bit more variety out there. And you have the russet Burbank, which is the most famous. McDonald's throughout time, I'm not exactly sure how long, but they've only approved Russet Burbank to be grown for their French fries. Gold standard. Gold standard. And so Russet Burbank has been one of Idaho's number one potatoes for a very long time. But recently they've approved new a new variety, a couple new varieties. And on the West Coast, it's Clearwater Russet. So Clearwater Russet has some qualities that, that, that makes them grow better in Washington. With, sure. And um, so there are develop- developments being made in potato breeding. And so there's a lot of different varieties. They just like to have a lot of different varieties available in case these large companies say, oh, yeah, I want to try that one because it has this quality that I like or it makes longer fries or there's less waste when we make fries, you know, things like that. So uh, there's a lot of different varieties available for that so that different companies can try them out and screen them and, and try it. We're just trying to improve the potato overall. Well, and the wonderful thing about the clear water is that we came up with that one, right? Yeah, it's part of the tri-state. So there's a tri-state breeding program, which is Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. And we all work together to produce these these new varieties. I would also think, like, you know, if you only had one potato out there that everybody was using and, you know, a bacteria evolved to, to munch on that potato, you would get, you know, the next version of the great Irish potato blight. And that would obviously be horrible. Yeah, it would. For me, trying to avoid what's called a monoculture, where you Mm -hmm. just have one type of potato being grown, I think it's a great idea. It's kind of hard to avoid sometimes because companies only want a certain type of potato and you have to grow 
you know, thousands of acres of that potato. But having these different varieties available, constantly trying to outcompete these pathogens. Mm -hmm. So pathogens, of course, evolve and they start to infect potatoes worse, you know, over time and they start to infect new varieties. So just like they just, do with every crop. It, yeah. Um, you always have to get one step ahead. And humans too, you know, <laughs> yeah. with the, the flu shot, you have to get it. So with potato breeders constantly trying to fight that and constantly trying to produce new varieties, we can we can have a new variety available if one becomes more susceptible to a new strain or or something like that of a virus. We have this variety that's resistant to that virus. So just always constantly trying to improve. Last couple questions. I guess one of the big ones is just why do we do this? I mean, this seems almost kind of like a full-time business. Why does U of I take that on? It's a good question because it is set up somewhat like a business, and this is a self-sustaining lab, so we don't rely on any grants or anything like that unless we decide to do a research project. Mm -hmm. But for the production side of it, for the student workers, for the full-time employees, the lab pays for itself. Quite a few universities actually have facilities like this. Um, okay. It's because there are breeders at different universities that are producing these new lines, and they need to have a way to get these lines out to the public. My greenhouse manager came up with a really great metaphor of an hourglass to show how important our lab is for actually getting these varieties out. So at the top of the hourglass, there's all of the researchers, the potato breeders, the plant pathologists, or the potato pathologists specifically, um, potato doctors. There's a bunch of potato doctors at the top. <laughs> and they're working hard throughout the years to produce new varieties with different qualities that could be of interest to the public. The middle of the hourglass is our lab. And so those researchers up there will send us material. They think, well, you know, this is showing some interest. This numbered line AO57652-2Y is showing some interest. Um, how about we send it to Jenny up at the lab? She can clean it up, establish it into tissue culture, and then she can have it available to growers. So we get the line cleaned up. We establish it into tissue culture, which is the test tube with the goo. Get all the germplasm ready. Yeah, get, all, get it established as a part of our germplasm collection. Mm -hmm. And then we offer it for sale out to the public. So at the bottom of the hourglass is conventional growers, as in non-organic large um, producers. We have the Big small, potato. small organic farmers. We have, you know, basically just the public. Mm -hmm. I produce it and have it available to the public. So that's the function of the lab. Without us, it'd be really hard to get the varieties that are produced in the tri-state breeding program, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. It'd be really hard to get those varieties out to the public. And lastly, I know that uh, you're a little squished into your lab that you've got right now, and there's plans for you to get a new home. So can you tell me about what's going on there? Yeah, so we produce about 250,000 plants per year. And we produce about 4,000 mini tubers per year, per year. And you would think that would be enough, but it is not. We have a larger demand than what we're able to produce with the space that we have. We talked with the dean, he toured our lab and he said, well, why don't we give you, get you more space? So we have a new facility being built. It's a $5 million standalone facility. And it's um, it will have a quarantine section for bringing in new varieties, a clean section with, you know, um, 
key card entry. It'll have larger storage facilities for plantlets so we can expand our germplasm collection mm-hmm. and possibly expand into a national germplasm repository. Um, it'll have offices. It'll have a classroom on it so that the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences can use that classroom. So that's the plan. We've, um, we're done with the design phase. We have it all designed, and now we're moving into the bidding phase. So the contractors are bidding on it, and we should be done in January of 2021. You'll get to move all your little potatoes over. I will, yes. Mm, now I'm imagining a little train of little baby plants getting dragged across campus. <laughs> we'll need a train, yes. <laughs> train of potatoes. Excellent. All right. Jenny, well, thank you so much for coming in today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. (laughs) If you got a kick out of learning about our famous potatoes, I think you'll like hearing about the success of a few other U of I research projects. College of Engineering students earned top placement in the National Academy of Engineering Global Grand Challenges Summit Student Competition. More than 900 students from around the world traveled to London where they were tasked with creating business plans to solve one of two problems. One problem involved sustaining a world with 10 billion people, and the other using artificial intelligence to change the world for the better. University of Idaho, Idaho Falls computer science graduate students took first place locally in the 2019 U.S. Department of Energy Cyberforce competition. They ranked 25 out of 105 collegiate teams competing nationally. The competition gives students hands-on cybersecurity education with a real-world scenario. And U of I has a global reach. A University of Idaho-led team of researchers found that experimental fences, including fences made from beehives, reduced the number of times elephants left Mozambique's Gorongosa National Park to raid nearby crops by 80 to 95%. While the fences were effective at deterring crop raiding, they also provided a revenue source for neighboring villages. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Vandal Theory. If you want to learn more about the research discussed today, I hope you'll visit our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory. There you can read our show notes and email me with comments. We'd love it if you would subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting website. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. And please rate and review us, too. We've really enjoyed telling stories about U of I research over the past few months, and we hope you'll join us for Season 3 next year. We really appreciate all your support. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining me.